This is Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at CSIS. The China Power team and I will be producing new episodes of the China Power podcast soon. In the meantime, we are airing a special series of some of our favorite episodes hosted by former China Power Director Bonnie Glazer. Please stay tuned and remember to subscribe to our podcast. I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the China Power Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power podcast, we're discussing China's military-civil fusion program, its goals, and its progress. While integration of the civilian and military sectors of the economy has been a goal for the Chinese Communist Party since the Deng Xiaoping era, Xi Jinping has prioritized this task. Military-civil fusion, or MCF aims to break down barriers separating military and civilian industries, integrating them in support of China's military development and broader national security agenda. China has sought to channel its economic prowess and innovation capacity toward creating a set of dual-use technologies that benefit the military without requiring costly state investments. Through official policies like Made in China 2025, the CCP hopes to create economic incentives for private companies to pursue development paths that will advance the party's military ambitions and strategic vision. Internationally, MCF is provoking concern in many countries who are wary of rapidly developing military capabilities in China and also of the increasingly blurred lines between public and private sectors when dealing with Chinese companies. To discuss military and civilian industrial fusion and development in China, I'm joined by Greg Levesque. Greg is a co-founder and CEO of Strider, a technology company enabling organizations to combat intellectual property theft and supply chain vulnerabilities outside of the cyber realm. He advises Fortune 500 companies as well as U.S. and European government agencies on matters of economic statecraft, particularly regarding China. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Bonnie. Pleasure to be here. So let's start by talking about the goals that China seeks to achieve through this military-civil fusion MCF program. And how do you see it and how does this fit within China's larger strategic goals? You know, at a broad sense, military-civil fusion really acts as this mechanism enabling China to become both an economic or a military superpower, uh, or as they see it. You see this objective set or ambition in uh, a whole range of policies and strategies that have come out, including the goal of modernizing the country's weapons and equipment capabilities by 2035 as it marches towards becoming a world-class, quote-unquote, military power by 2050. And, you know, military civil fusion, I think, enables China to achieve these goals in a couple of different ways. The first comes down to the introduction of new policies and structures that enables the military to harness the country's economic achievements uh, over the last 20 years, which has been quite remarkable to support rapid military modernization, as well as mobilizing the economy during a potential future conflict. So, those kinds of notions of structures and channels you see often in military civil fusion policies and discussions. 
And, you know, this is where a lot of the research on this topic focuses to date, which makes a lot of sense. But there's also, I think, a really significant dimension here that's often missed, which is the MCF also calls for the synchronizing of national economic and defense planning. Right. These are traditionally kind of two different realms from a central planner's perspective. I think it's into the guns versus butter macroeconomic question. And through a military civil fusion, you see real efforts to focus on dual use industries and technologies and infrastructure in order for state resources to really get that biggest bang for their buck. And this is really, I think, part of that broader effort underway with military civil fusion to enhance China's overall military and economic capabilities. So what does the military civil fusion program tell us about China's strategic thinking, in particular, how it's trying to bring together these different domains that, you know, traditionally remain relatively distinct? So first, you know, I I think it really highlights this point that the CCP views, you know, these domains as extensions of itself and that it will act in each of them to enhance its national comprehensive power and position itself to compete. I mean, on that point, it also hits home that Beijing's plans to compete in the 21st century really focus on dual-use technologies and industries. I think that's where they see this uh, window of opportunity to enhance their position vis-a-vis the United States and the West. These are often domains that have strategic importance, both economically and militarily. And strategies like military civil fusion, made in China 2025, others, they all focus in on this kind of dual use capability and enhancing China's ability to be a leader in those spaces. It also, though, you know, hits on some some of the obfuscation tactics underway here, right? You know, China watchers are really familiar with this notion of, of hide and bide, Deng Xiaoping's maxim of hide and bide. And I think there's been a lot of discussion that you know, General Secretary Xi has really thrown that to the wayside here over the last you know, number of years. Military civil fusion has this kind of, you know, not necessarily hide and bide, but obfuscate kind of air to it. You know, sow doubt or question into the intentions or motivations underlying a particular transaction or infrastructure project. And that will then enable them to really move the ball forward in a way that does not elicit an immediate reaction by by would-be competitors. So I think those are all kind of really important components here. The last thing I'll say on that point, though, is that I also think it reveals some insecurities and vulnerabilities. And the reason is because when you look at military civil fusion policy documents and discourses among PLA planners, there's this real sense of urgency that, hey, we really need to rapidly get this done. We need to move the ball forward here faster. And if we don't, we're going to lose the ability to compete and you see things like, you know, if we don't implement military civil fusion, you know, rapidly or comprehensively enough, then an entire era will be lost. Right. I mean, it's, it's kind of along those terms that I think is driving this military civil fusion implementation uh, urgency. There are obviously many industrialized countries around the world that have pursued industrial strategies, industrial policies, Germany probably being at the top of the list. And the United States, of course, has at times given priorities to companies to develop new technologies that have then also been applied to the military. So can you talk a little bit about 
What's different then about China's military civil fusion program? Is it really very different from what Western governments have pursued in the past? And if so, how? It's really different. You know, and, and just to kind of kick things off, I mean, there's a fundamental difference in the relationship between the CCP and China and private industry, right, on one hand. So, I mean, we're not talking apples to apples here or out of the gate. From the CCP's perspective, you know, industry is, is an extension of itself, particularly when you're talking about state-owned enterprises, including the defense conglomerates. This has been stated pretty openly by Xi Jinping himself, using terminology like SOEs are important forces to implement party decisions, and you're seeing more and more consolidation of party control in industry. But when you look at military civil fusion policy documents, right, I can see where there is some questions around how does this how is this different than Western notions of civil military integration, particularly when you look at uh, reforming the defense science technology innovation system or procurement processes, things like that, the more boring things, right, that are also really important. But what I found is when you dig into the tactical implementation level, this is really where you start to see the stark differences at play here. And, and just a couple of examples to hit that home. We're now seeing corporate militias being set up within companies to align their activities with military missions. And, and militias in the Chinese system are specifically tasked with you know, making preparations for war and supporting defense operations. And you generally do not see that discussed in the industrial commercial realm. And yet here it is, and it being driven by this military civil fusion concept. The other piece is industry alliances. There is an abundance of military civil fusion industry alliances that combine technology companies, state-owned enterprises, government agencies, and even at times military organizations who will all get together to coordinate their activities around implementing particular military civil fusion policies. And one example of that is the Shenzhen Military Civil Fusion Blockchain Development Committee. This is formed in 2018 with a real clear mission set to align Shenzhen's blockchain development industry with some of the military and national defense development priorities underway in that, in that technology domain as well. China has, as you know, the Project C919 to build a narrow-bodied commercial jet, which has made some progress, but also apparently continues to struggle. Recently, we had an event at CSIS, the Department of Justice, and the Attorney General had a terrific slide. I don't know if you saw it, but it highlighted all of the different technologies, some of which China bought from the West and others that were allegedly stolen. And so, you know, this is an example, perhaps, of the potential for the military civil fusion program to create more attention with other countries, maybe even create reputation problems for China. There's another example of port construction going on that the China Communication Construction Company has undertaken in Sri Lanka and Pakistan, where there have been some pushback due to issues related to corruption, transparency, and even uh, financial sustainability. So do you think that there are potential downsides and risks for China and its companies as it seeks to be competitive and pursue military civil fusion? 
You know, absolutely. And here's why. You referenced the Sri Lanka Hambantota port case, right? And this is a this is a one belt, one road project. It was financed and constructed by Beijing. And ultimately, when Sri Lankan government couldn't pay its debt, the state-owned China Merchants Bank stepped in and took control of the port and received a 99-year lease. And in this act, right, Beijing really sent a signal to the rest of the world, in my opinion, which was, you know, if you're a partner that can't pay, they'll gladly leverage the situation to their own benefit. And, you know, Beijing may have thought that they were showing some strength here, but to other nations that have signed up for One Belt, One Road or taken Chinese financing, I think it created a lot of concern. You saw Kenya's uh, inspector general after this launch an investigation to the terms of its deals with China and some of the One Belt, One Road projects that they took on. So I think that's only going to spread here. And when you stop and look at it, you know, what is the real concern? And I think the concern that is front of mind is, were these projects commercially viable to begin with, or was there a strategic or military motivation behind it? And military civil fusion, right, underpins that kind of thinking that I think is only going to make it more difficult for Chinese companies operating globally to compete on what I would call normal commercial terms, so long as the suspicion of these motivations exists. So how do you assess the main obstacles that China faces in pursuing this goal of further integrating its uh, military and civilian sectors? And do you think that this is something that is ultimately achievable the way that the Chinese have defined it and the benchmarks that they've set for themselves? If you look back at Xi Jinping's, for example, 19th Party Congress uh, political report and how he talked about the goals that China wants to achieve by 2035 and 2049. I mean, this is ultimately part of the agenda of not only achieving the fully modernized military that Xi Jinping said should be achieved by 2035, but also achieving the goal of making China a first-tier or world-class military by 2049. So what are the big challenges and can they do it? You know, th- there's no lack of ambition in military civil fusion. And when you step back and look at the progress that's been made today, it is quite impressive. You know, based on the indicators I've seen, they are making very real and rapid progress in implementing many of the structural and policy reforms, uh, particularly over the last three years. But the inflection point that I would note here is when, you know, the party stepped in and formed the Central Military Civil Fusion Development Committee, which is led by Xi Jinping. That's when you really started to see barriers broken down. And to me, it begs the question, you know, is the party the only tool that can really push these kinds of initiatives forward across the Chinese system? And I think over the long run, that will be probably one of the uh, impediments to actually fully implementing this, this policy. You know, a couple of obstacles to note, in addition to that one, is a major MCF priority is increasing the share of non-state um, civilian enterprise participation in the defense industry. So the idea is, you know, we need to create more competition. We need to tap emerging technology companies and be able to harness those technologies to support military modernization. But, you know, the reality is at the same time, they're doubling down on the defense SOEs and their monopolies over those industries like aviation and aerospace. And it makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, 
for would-be startups to come into those places, you know, into those industries and uh, make any meaningful impact. So, you know, you do see cases where there's kind of efforts to build little ecosystems around these 12 defense SOEs so that they can kind of enhance their supply chain and develop new vendor relationships. But to me, these, these efforts kind of seem more surface level and I don't think are as in line with the intention of that particular initiative within MCF. The second is, is really what I'd call like legacy management systems. Over the last 20 years, Chinese roads and airports, telecommunication systems, things like that, they weren't necessarily built with this notion of dual use capabilities in mind. And you're now seeing under military civil fusion this requirement to merge these plans together, right? And to look at both the economic capabilities that are being built and the military. But the hiccup here is like the framework doesn't really exist for that kind of evaluation and for organizations in the military and defense world and the commercial to align their priorities. And that's leading to some inefficiencies in the system right now. In your opinion, is this military civil fusion a major threat to the interests of the United States and other leading industrial countries? And if so, how would you define what that threat is? When I look at military civil fusion and whether or not it's a threat, I quickly come to this conclusion that yes, it is, right? And I think it's worth an example to kind of walk through to highlight that. So let's take what we know about military civil fusion and overlay that onto a map of one belt, one road projects around the world. And it should really make us pause for a moment and wonder, you know, how many of these projects are going to become like a Djibouti, which also started off as a commercial project and is now a PLA Navy base. Right? And I think, you know, you could start by just looking at what are the defense SOEs doing within the one belt, one road context. And that will really highlight for most, I think, the threat that military civil fusion poses to U.S. strategic interests around the world. On the flip side of that, you know, looking at that same map, right, it could also give you a lot of insight into PLA planning and priorities and enable us to develop a more clear-minded response or clear-eyed response to these kinds of initiatives. But I think uh, that mental exercise is really worthwhile and it hits home this point that is it's extremely difficult for the U.S., or frankly, any other Western power to protect its strategic interests from a military-led initiative like MCF if it thinks it's a commercial one, right? And so there needs to be a bit of a mental shift here. And this is, to me, where the blending of domains prescribed by MCF changes the game from a strategic competition standpoint and begins to use Western notions of separateness and duality right? Like church and state, commercial and military, and it puts us in a bit of a strategic disadvantage. With the shift towards great power competition that we've seen in recent years, do you think that we will be seeing economic proxy wars between the world's major powers play out? Is this the future that you think things like the military civil fusion are taking us to? This is a very fascinating and quickly moving area, right? And I think we're already seeing these kinds of economic proxy wars at some levels, I fully expect it to expand. So, you know, I'd, I'd argue that right now this is taking place in Europe, right, with 5G. And 
You can see this with the U.S. lobbying its allies in Europe to not use 5G equipment. But it, we're also in a bit of a predicament here because we've underinvested in 5G technology and are really reliant on companies like Ericsson and Nokia, not U.S. companies, to service Huawei alternatives. Right. So, you know, from an economic proxy war standpoint, I, I hope this is a bit of a lesson learned for us. Because in order for the U.S. to compete and maintain its position globally vis-a-vis -vis China, it has to ensure that we can deliver these kinds of technologies to our allies. And frankly, I think if we can't, over the long run, we'll lose that position to China. Really where I start to see you know, these economic proxy wars ramping up is when the U.S. and other countries begin to adopt some kind of coordination with industry partners to counter China or to compete with China. And I think we're already starting to see the early you know, movements here out of the U.S. government that signal that this is coming. So, you know, for example, the U.S. recently formalized Team Telecom. This is an interagency group that reviews and restricts foreign investment and ownership of U.S. telecom assets, right? The State Department also recently announced that they are launching what they're calling the D.C. Central Deal Team. This is an interagency group that is intimately focused on strategically supporting U.S. companies abroad. So I think these are both kind of immediate indicators right now that we're already moving in that direction. And the economic statecraft, the use of commercial means to achieve strategic ends is back in a big way. Well, finally, are there any other steps that you think that the U.S. and other countries should be taking? Obviously, there's been a big emphasis on trying to protect technology more. We've seen the China Initiative stood up, uh, for example, by the Department of Justice, a real effort to crack down on stealing of commercial technology and applying it. But we have the agreement in the Obama administration with China that the two countries agreed that we would not steal technology using uh, cyber espionage and then apply it for commercial advantage. That apparently has not held. So it appears that agreements with China are not going really to be able to solve this problem. So I'm guessing negotiations are not the answer here. What else does the U.S. need to do ourselves and with our allies in order to prevent China from gaining a big strategic advantage through military civil fusion? So I think the first thing we got to do is define our own strategic priorities. I think to date, our response has been pretty reactive to China and what they're doing, particularly in strategic and emerging technology domains. That's not a long-term strategy that puts us in a position to win, right? We have to be setting the pace and defining the strategic priorities, um, and that's how we're also going to get our allies aligned. The other thing is we need to invest in hard tech and emerging technologies. You know, we can't have situations like we're currently in with 5G in the future where, you know, we're, we've identified an area where we need to compete with China and we don't have the capability to offer a better alternative to our partners. That's an important component that we need to be thinking about here as, as we gear up for long-term strategic competition. The other, though, that I think we don't give a lot of thought to is our ability to effectively assess PRC capabilities, both in economic and military terms. And to be fair, strategies like military civil fusion make that even more difficult, right? Especially when you're looking at assessing military capability. 
But over the long run, this is vital for us to understand China's tactics, how they're adapting, and how they're filling key capability gaps that are going to give them an edge in this competition. And the last thing I'd point to is the need to align investment screen with our allies, right? We've gone through some exercises in the U.S. to enhance our abilities to screen foreign investment, including in technology startups. This isn't blended very nicely with our European allies in particular. And it's not to say that we need to have overlapping review regimes, but even if it's just a consensus around strategic and emerging technologies, that would go a long way to protecting all of us and enhancing Western competitiveness in this competition. In terms of expanding that scope, it could also look at not just reviewing the national security implications inherent within any kind of investment. If you're looking to compete, you need to be able to understand your competitor, their objectives, why they want to acquire a certain technology or company, and where that fits in with their strategy and be able to respond uh, accordingly. We've been talking with Greg Levesque, who is co-founder and CEO of Strider. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Bonnie. It was a pleasure to be here and appreciate the offer. We hope you enjoyed this special episode. The China Power Podcast will release new episodes shortly. Thank you for your patience and continued support. rise has captivated and vexed the international community. From security in the environment to trade and human rights, Beijing is reaching far beyond its borders and its impacts are being felt across the globe. I'm Bonnie Glazer, director of the German Marshall Fund's Asia program and host of the new podcast, China Global. As China continues to chart its global ambitions, I'll be exploring different facets of its foreign policy choices, and what they mean for the rest of the world, with a cast of top international experts and policymakers. In my first episode, which will be posted soon, I speak with Professor Xiang Lanxin about Chinese views of Europe. And in the next episode, I'll talk to Ivana Karaskova about vaccine diplomacy. China Global will air every other week. Listen and subscribe on Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Twitter with at GMF Asia.